Recording in progress. It's funny. A big part of recording a podcast is the actual recording part. I am a conceptual artist and uh, conceptual podcasting is the next big thing. Can't wait. Okay, get this yawn out of my system. <laughs> All right, there we go. All right, here we go. All right, now find your center. Centered and centered. Ohm, etc. Ohm, etc. Very true. Ohm, etc. Yes. Okay, All right. Here we go. I've ferried 221 souls across the river of death, and I can already tell my 222nd is going to be a real shit kicker. I know by the lightness of the manila folder in my hand, the preemptive pity in the courier's face as she gives it to me. I read the typewritten card paper, paper clipped to the front with my stomach tensed, braced for the sucker punch. Lightning recap. In Hugo-nominated short story, Mr. Death by Alex E. Harrow, a grim reaper has to decide the course of another's life and his own afterlife. Correct. I'm glad my summary is right. I must, I must have read the right words in the right order. I like to jump around in stories. It really, really clears up things. Did you know that Rosebud was a sled? I thought it was a horse. Same thing. It was a different time. Yeah. Oh my God, you've got a little time. Oh my God, we've got a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast. We are live, as in living, uh, here in beautiful places where we are. It's rolling up on the warmer time of spring, and it just makes me feel like I should read a story that deals with death. What, what story should I read that deals with death? You should read Mr. Death by Alex E. Harrow, which you'll be surprised to hear, I know this is going to shock you, deals with death. That's right. It also deals with being Hugo nominated. Uh, that's subtext for all of the next few stories. Um, and as, as am I, maybe I have mentioned that lately. Um, but, but I think this story in particular speaks to a whole bunch of things throughout the world, not only of science fiction and fantasy, but also absurdism and surrealism. It's this idea that the big picture of consciousness, that is the soul, applies to a bureaucratic set of rules. <laughs> and that idea should ease ourselves into this process, believing, oh, the whole, you know, there is a manila envelope that has my due date on it and i'll end up in something greater and you would think that but for me it doesn't still just as scared somehow bureaucracy and red tape actually makes even death worse <laughs> i've actually um I've, I've taken this approach in the past of the grim reaper my very first agented novel was about uh grim reapers basically they like they, they even have a grim reaper convention Ooh. 
that's how uh, corporate it is. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I really appreciated the approach of taking something that is familiar and frustrating to us. And that is bureaucracy and the plotting day-to-day minutia of a job, the little details, the forms, the papers, et cetera, and applying it to something that terrifies many of us, um, like death and something that is, is overwhelming and almost impossible to conceptualize like grief and applying that. And it, it, you're right. It does actually, I mean, it's a wonderful story, but it still, it makes the feelings inside of you, you know, the, the things that you feel makes them worse in a good way. <laughs> it reminds me a lot of the works of uh, Charlie Strauss and uh, also the river of London series by that guy whose name I cannot remember for the life of me. Um, yeah, that dude. He's Scottish, I think. Aronson? No, something like that. But uh, they, they apply the same thing to, usually it's police departments, but here having this, you know, life and death agency, it reminds me also of the film Defending Your Life by Albert Brooks. Oddly, my first date film. Uh, <laughs> It's a weird one to have for a first date. But one of the things that uh, Alex Harrow does so well is confronts us with a big, scary sadness. And having it happen this week with the recent events, it's the literal death of a two-year-old. Um, yeah. And that's, that's heavy. Um, this but, was not timed. This was not planned. This just happened to be our cross to bear that we had to read this during a time of great sadness. Yeah. And uh, I spent a lot of time hugging my little guys. Um, but yeah, they're so cute. Aww. They didn't pee on me, though. That was nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that with the way that the story unravels, it, it is at once depressing because our main character is struggling with what their role in the universe is and they are the ones who are to ferry he's going to ferry the dead child across the river sticks I guess we're supposed to sort of use that imagery um, to the other side and I love also the use of a corporate slogan for life and death and the creepers um do you stay and become nothing or do you uh, go across and be with everything? I think that's a, you know, the great, <laughs> if I were about life and death, I would definitely come up with a really good slogan. <laughs> yeah. I want that slogan on a t-shirt, but there's definitely this feeling of throughout the story, uh, this idea that he doesn't know our, our Reaper friend here he's supposed to be guiding people towards the afterlife towards what comes next, but he doesn't know what comes next. Well, that is a good point. And it's interesting that, you know, it's not a religion specific form of afterlife. And I think that is fascinating unless we actually believe our religion is bureaucracy which I am willing to consider. Um, but yeah, there are elements of, you know, ferrying across the river that's 
uh, Greek myth and Roman mythology. We have uh, elements of the guardian angel and the uh, reaper of death, both of which very much uh, old school Christian. And there's some paganism in there too. So, I mean, there's all these sort of things playing and she synthesizes it so well. And that's what I love about Alex Harrow's work is she, she synthesizes concept so well into single stream stories that feel very, very compact. And at the same time, give you little hooks that if you wanted to, you could really spiral off into. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, it's, it's compact, but it's also like dense with feeling and with, with emotion. And I think that that's one of the things that makes it such a stunner of a story. Is it just, it just the entire time you're, you're really wanting to see, because this is literally life and Mr. Death, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's poignant. And I do think those little hooks that are, are given along the way are another big part of what, what really pulls you in and keeps you reading aside from the natural suspense, because this is, this is a unique world and the, the world building is done subtly and smoothly, but it's definitely a different world than what we're used to. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And as it goes, this is a story where we are waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole way through. And to maintain that is actually kind of difficult. Now, one of the ways she does that is by, uh, she sort of chunks it at points. And there are a couple of very short, I guess you'd call them interludes, that sort of push back what you think is going to be inevitable. And in the end, wait a minute, it's entirely evitable. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was super evitable and I still didn't evit it. Um, it's, <laughs> it's big. I, I like those interludes too. I, I like that idea of not racing at breakneck speed towards the end, but allowing some breathing room for the reader to sit and consider what has happened and what could happen, even as the characters are considering that. I think that really actually amps up suspense and makes it more of a whole, you know, it's not just, it, it, it makes it more, I don't know, I guess expensive. It's not cheap suspense. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good, that's a really good way to look at it. That you are, you are expending thought and time to get to what you think is going to be because the entire way through I'm going, yeah. Okay. Just the kid's going to die. I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to go drink. Uh, and instead it's like, uh, Oh, wait a minute. This is happiness. And now I get to drink. Uh, <laughs> yes. And also expensive suspense is a, a good exercise for, if you're preparing for any sort of public speaking. Uh, yeah. Expensive I suspense. do it a lot. <laughs> you do right here with me this every week. Wait, what? Oh, this is going to be out on the internet. People are going to hear this with their ears. I think I have some numbers that prove that wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, We end up with a beautifully simple ending. And it is beautiful, comma, and simple. Uh, the The last sentence alone is... 
it's not quite tear jerking, but it's getting towards tear jerking. Yeah, there was there were some tears about to jerk or something um, when I finished the story. Hey, you introduced us to this. You you started it, and yeah, it definitely it was it was just about to turn into crying, but there was just enough lightness in that ending to make it better uh, to help to help unjerk the tears as it were <laughs> and yeah you know I'm a sucker for endings I think this is one of the one of the best endings we've read on the show it's it just really uh, I didn't edit it I didn't edit it once it <laughs> and I thought that the uh what was the other story we read that has a very similar premise to this um I cannot remember for the life of me. If only there was a database of information stored on, on computers around the world. <laughs> that actually listed all of the things that we have talked about. All yeah. the stories. Uh, not the Lady or the Tiger. Uh, the stuff that happened at Owl Creek Bridge. Um, oh, was it like Brokeback Mountain? Um, no. It's one of those. The Sin Eater. Oh, the Sin Eater. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. They both have, they both revolve around uh, death. And yeah, we'll go ahead with what your comparison is. Well, my thought is that it is two characters who are living in, who are both visible to us and understandable as, as human type sort of characters but are actually beyond that. And their interactions with life and death um, becomes really, really apparent. I think the difference is the Sin Eater uh, dwells more in the darkness and kind of gets more dark as you go along. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. While here, it dwells on the edge of the darkness trying to pull us towards a lightness, and it manages to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I like, I love how it does that. It, it, it definitely, I was not expecting any sort of a light ending for how everything went. So it, it felt especially gratifying to get that in the end. And I think really was, was quite well done and made me feel like I was rewarded for all the, the time spent being sad. <laughs> we also call those our teenage years. Um, <laughs> yes, Hey, hey, Chris, you got anything else on this one? Uh, no, I think that's about all I have. I really enjoyed it. And uh, it's it, it would be in top consideration for my vote. Oh, hello. Um, well, then, you know what? We yes. Should, we should read something next week. What do you yeah. think? Yeah. Next week, or maybe um, several hours ago, uh, we should read Hugo-nominated short story Proof of Induction by Jose Pablo Iriarte, which Iriarte? I don't know either. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm going to go with Iriarte. Um, so yeah, the, you, you might notice a theme here uh, and no, that theme is not that they're both Hugo-nominated. <laughs> that they're about death and grieving. Yeah. But also Hugo, Hugo nominated for best death and grieving. <laughs> yes, best death and grieving short stories. 
<laughs> there you go. Well, well, until we're done with our death and grieving here, <laughs> this has been Short Story. Short Podcast. Excellent. All right. Hold on now. Give me some silence while I give you some claps. Oh, I'm going to out. First paragraph? Mm-hmm. That was the type of yawn they write poems about. It was epic. It was an epic yawn, and an epic poem should be written about it. Uh, what was this poem called, or that story called again? I need to pull it up. Uh, proof of induction. Proof of induction. Uh, induction, which is my favorite Prince album. Uh, proof of induction. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Uh, a short story. So it's telling to tell me how to actually uh, induce proof by induction. There we go. <laughs> Un- oh, Uncanny. I love that magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, I know those folks. You do know those folks. Many of them. <laughs> sure this is. Uh, first paragraph sounds good. Okay, let's do that then. All right. Polly rushes out the elevator doors the moment they part, only to skid to a halt at the sight of his father's wife. She shakes her head, but he doesn't need the confirmation. If Trisha is out here and not in the hospital room with his father, it can only mean he has passed. He numbly accepts a hug from her. In Hugo-nominated short story, Proof of Induction by Jose Pablo Iriarte, a man uses the remains of his father's memory in an effort to solve some math. Is this some sort of short story? Uh, I think this might be some kind of short podcast. <laughs> this is some sort of short story, short podcast. I am Christopher Garcia son of John Paul Garcia, here today with... I am Christy Baxter, and you are nominated for a Hugo Award. You know what? So is this short story I read this week. I told you what the name of that was, didn't I? Yes, you did. It was Proof of Induction by Jose Pablo Ariarte. I'm, I'm really... I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Mr. Ariarte. Um, I apologize if, I, if I'm not... <laughs> You got his name right, but you got the story title wrong. Proof of induction? Proof by induction. Oh my gosh, it's right in front of me. It's literally right in front of me. It's, <laughs> I, be, I, I even zoomed in a little bit so I could see it better as I read the intro. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. I am just the best podcaster that ever casted a pod. Oh, it's another slut-shaming ghost scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm going to depart from my planned remarks and say a little bit of extemporanea. Um, In a decade called The Past, I wrote a story, and I think it was called Life Memory, in which the basic premise of the story is that before you die, you can sign up to have uh, a, what they call, I believe it was a consciousness accelerator so that it would speed up your your mind so that you could live an extra hundred years in cyberspace type stuff. 
um, in which you could, so you would feel like you were living for almost ever. Uh, this concept reflects in here as well, which makes me really happy because while my story was never published outside of a small uh, a magazine called Nth Degree, which is now sadly gone, uh, this takes the idea, does it actually well um, with spell checking, and uh, presents this story that is incredibly emotional because of its detachment. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of. I also want to back way, 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 way up to the beginning of your, your uh, un unprepared off the cuff remarks here and say that when you said you were going to deviate from your prepared remarks, I had a moment of, really? Did you, <coughs> could you prepare some remarks, Mr. Garcia? Did you? So just, just wanted to catch up on what's going on in my head. But yes, <laughs> this is... This is, there is so much detachment. It's that detachment of intellectualism. It's that detachment of science and academia that you, you, you can't care too much about the things that are on earth, the solid things, because your head is too much in the clouds of knowledge and theorems and theories and figuring things out. And it just pulls you away from earth. And so I think one of the things about the story, we have a mathematician and uh, his father, his father is deceased, but a part of him, the, the last, like his memories remains in some form that can be accessed almost like digitally. And I think that it's almost like that's about the same amount of father that Polly has had in his entire life. And I think that is one of the fascinating things. It's that Polly obviously wants something more. Also, I can't hear the name Polly without thinking there's some sort of mobster. I just can't do it. <laughs> See, I think that there's going to be a caveman defrosted. That's where I go. Okay, first off, Encino Man is a prime film that everyone should see. Today. Master piece masterpiece i can't even say it how correct that is um, <laughs> but uh what's great about this story is that it brings up some questions of so we have a basically a snapshot of a consciousness and it allows you to access it and communicate with it in a cyber world that gives you some sort of limitations, I guess. Um, so basically, every time Polly goes in and discusses with his father what's going on, and to, as they try to work out this math theorem that is really heady, <laughs> uh, he has to sort of catch him up and then work through this whole sort of thing using various little pieces that they've gathered from other mathematicians. One of the first things this made me think was academia is such garbage. Um, <laughs> just pure garbage. Um, because how they are going about it is literally, they're standing on the shoulders of giants. And this idea that is being very, very clearly presented here is that 
we are only as good as the things we can reflect on. And because Polly is looking back at a literal person whose work he is building on and is interacting with it directly as opposed to, you know, the interacting with, he said, with quotation fingers that academics do when they're writing their, their papers and their proofs and stuff. It really does call into question that whose proof was this? And that question becomes very difficult when I sort of start thinking about it. Yeah, it feels like this proof belongs to a bunch of dead people and also some some poly. Um, it's it's definitely see you're focused on the academia part and I'm focused on the emotional part, which is is probably me just kind of pushing the academia aside because I'm like, well, I'm I'm not in it right now, so I just I don't need to think about academia. And I'm focused on the emotional part and this idea that even as he's progressing in his career and in his thinking, he's still like stuck for the longest time in the story on this idea of it's going to be different this time with my dad. He's going to be different. And the thing is, is that he's working with a remnant. He's working with just the last like thoughts and memories. He's not working with something that's capable of change. And I think the real crux of the story comes down to Polly realizing that the person who needs to change is him. And, you know, considering his daughter more and everything and trying to not make the same mistakes his dad did. And if you look at it from a distance, from, from just, with, just with that idea of, well, we can't change other people. We can only change ourselves. It sounds kind of hopey and like maybe something you'd hear in like, I don't know, Alcoholics Anonymous or something. But it really, in this story, it's earned. Because it feels like he's, Polly is averse to change, but he expects the impossible from his father's ghost. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I think that this idea that once you are at the, once you have gone through your youth, once you've gone through the process where you expect people to be able to change, you arrive at a point where you can never change. And this is capturing that. And in essence, that is a completely self-defeating. If you want to, you know, if you're using this process to actually grieve, how can you do that? Because of the difficulties that you have with the idea that this thing is literally stuck at a point where it can't go further. Yeah, you can't, you can't fully and properly grieve when you're stuck in the past because grief itself is going into the, a future that is without the person you've lost. Oh, I'm making myself sad. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's very much a thing where you have to move forward. You have to recognize that the past is the past and you can't get it back and you can't change the things that happened in the past. And that's okay. But you can change the way that you are acting and interacting in the present. And you can change the possibilities of the future. A very good point. Um, hold on one second. <laughs> yes, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Go to the other room, please. <laughs> um, what's, what's interesting is that the emotional side stays where it is. The intellectual side moves forward. And what's interesting about that 
is the interrogation method. He is interrogating his father's intellectual side, intellectual memory, which allow for uh, further thinking, which brings him to the big breakthrough, which moves him forward, gets him tenure for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> but none of the interaction changes the emotional side. And I, that is, of course, depressing. Um, but I would argue it does change the emotional side because it helps him to realize that he can and needs to let go of his father and focus on his daughter. Once he's gotten over that hump, once he's gotten that one thing that he always thought he and his father would experience together of, of actually like doing this mathematical proof and then it's just him. And, you know, every time he goes to tell his father about it, it's, it's still for his father is, uh, you know, moments after he died. So I think that that is what he needed. He actually does what he needs to do, which is get that out of the way. This thing that he and his father were working towards so that he can focus on his life and the future, because that is now part of the past. But he won't let, he's definitely not going to let it go until he's passed it, until he's done it. Good point. Uh, I also love the fact that this made me feel like a better father. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is always nice when stories can help our self-esteem. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things when I look at the stories that we've looked at so far, uh, they all have sort of a couple of different elements. One is the reflection of a past self or an alternate self on the present. And there's no question that Polly sees a lot of himself and his father. Uh, there's no question that the two versions in uh, Unknown Color are, <laughs> are very much alike, but also see their differences and are reflected on how the whole story is basically premised about how they reflect upon one another and what that can mean for the future. And uh, in, in Mr. Death, he's still carrying his past with him. And that's affecting, you know, what he does in the future. I mean, what we do in the past always affects us in the future, but it is, it's a matter of being stuck, whether it's it's making us st stuck in the past or whether we're still able to move forward and just kind of integrate that part into ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think all three of these show something that our last set kind of did, the last set of uh, Hugo nominees did, but these are all more upbeat endings. And I think that's important because it reflects what we hope for the present. And I really think that, you know, in these times where things are sort of opening up a little bit, people are doing a little bit better, uh, that this new sort of idea, we're going to see a lot more, and definitely in a couple of the other stories we'll be looking at, uh, that it's a more hopeful time. And these stories seem to have a more hopeful view of where we're going. The optimism of the 20s after a dark period never happened before. <laughs> First time in history, no deja vu whatsoever. Deja vu. <laughs> yes. Got anything else on this one there, Christy? Uh, no, I enjoyed it. Um, I'll go ahead and be open with my voting feelings as it were that as of now when I've only read three of the how many are there five six six 
six. So I've only read 50% of stories. As of now, this is not in my top one. It could still move up there just because my I'm I am in myself a constantly changing and shifting work in progress. And uh, I, I change with the winds, buddy. I change with the winds. So that doesn't mean anything. That just means that's what I'm feeling in this moment. Um, I could be a whole different person in three minutes. And go. Um, <laughs> well, I'm going to be a whole different person with a cup of coffee because I'm like nodding because I did not take a long enough nap this afternoon. I'm about to take mine in a minute. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this one for me is as a story, it's, it's middle of the road for what I've read so far. I've read two more stories of these. Um, as a concept that gets me going, uh, it's really, to me, this is high concept and I really enjoy the concept. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for me right now, it's, it has the emotional impact that I'm looking for. And it has a, but it has that still, there's always that detachment that is going to make me a little less able to cling on to it because I am, if nothing, an expressor. Uh, <laughs> I might've cried in my once. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head there that it's there. There's, there's that detachment that is necessary for the story because, or almost necessary, almost definitely necessary, because we have two people who are detached from each other. And I, I think that in order to enhance that, in order to reinforce that, you have to have this detached voice and feeling. It's unfortunate that it's necessary for the, the, the whole heart of the story because it does make it harder to really feel it, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, and, it has math, and I, I just can't in good conscience ever be, like, rah-rah for math. I just can't. I kind of like the math, actually. I understood some of it. Um, <laughs> it was, <laughs> wow, you're way smarter than me. I got none of it. <laughs> I also think one of the interesting things is, had this gone that it was, that at the end, you know, you know, his Semekrum and father had said, I love you, uh, it would have made it very saccharine uh, <laughs> yeah that would that would have actually been the hokiest and possibly too like cloying ending sometimes you just can't give your characters what they really want you have to give them instead what they didn't know they needed maybe you're right but you just might be crazy <laughs> might be okay sure <laughs> might be <laughs> i am both right and crazy oh fair enough hey hey christy yes you feel like reading a story next week you know i'm kind of getting the, the the urge to do a little bit of reading yeah a little bit of reading and then maybe afterwards we'll like talk about it that sound good yeah what do you think we should read I think we should read The Sin of America by Catherine M. Valenti. Hugo nominated maybe about death and grieving if uh, <laughs> if this slate is any, any indication thus far or about the halves of ourselves that we from the past that we carry around. Yes, I, uh, as I have said before on this show, I love 
Kat Valenti, a friend uh, who I hope I see in Chicago, but I don't know. Because uh, if I don't, I'll be sad. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And that's right. We read uh, The Radiant Car Thy Sparrows Drew was the last one we read from her. Ah, yes, that was good. That's very good. I'm looking forward to The Sin of America. I, I'm curious to see. This title's definitely pulling me in. I'm curious. It's the sin of America. <laughs> um, Excellent. Well, on that musical note, this hath been a short story. A shortest podcast. If. <laughs> if. <laughs> on that <laughs> musical note. Ha ha ha.